This show was first broadcast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM, thanks to New Zealand On Air. Tēnā koutou e te whānau, nau mai haere mai ki te waka witi-witi kōrero marunga te irirangi ki tea. Welcome to our show, Talking About Seeing, here on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4. Each week, people who don't see and some who don't hear as well are going to talk to each other about what makes their lives tick. We have lots to talk about, so here goes. Hello, I'm Geoffrey Aiken, and I'm going to have a conversation with Lance Girling Butcher as part of Talking About Seeing, an oral history project for the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington, as well as a radio programme on Access Radio Taranaki. Today is the 1st of March 2022, and this recording is being made at Access Radio. Good afternoon, Lance. It's a great pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you. You're a man who is very well known in the community and elsewhere, and we all hold you in very high regard. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Jeff. Good afternoon to you. I can't praise highly enough the, the idea of these interviews because I, I think they'll play a significant role in helping the general public to understand blindness, disability, and some of those other words that we hear so much about, but uh, a lot of people don't know much about. Um, one of the biggest problems the disabled community faces, I believe, is that they're not understood by the general public, and people are embarrassed about talking to them because they don't know enough and they don't want to embarrass themselves. So, well done, and uh, I, I, I really hope that this succeeds. I think it's very important, that this, this sort of project. Well, Lance, we definitely share the same views about the value of these conversations. I think what I hope my contribution to this might be is to try and give us a bit of detail as to make it easier for us to talk about things to do with seeing. So because you've had some of your life with normal vision, I thought we should start off by talking about, well, what is normal vision? And here I have put together a little blurb to try and help people understand this. Our eyes are supposed to provide us with central, peripheral, colour and night vision. This is processed in our brains along with visual memory, placing us in the middle of a panoramic, three-dimensional image of our surroundings and identifying what we need to know. The eyes see what they want to see. So Lance, you're not in a situation to give us first-hand, right now, information about normal vision, but there are some things I would really like to hear about from you. Firstly, we've put in here visual memories. So I'm wondering if you could tell me something about your visual memories from the time when you could see normally. I, I look, I totally agree with you, Jeff. I think, I, I, I just believe that I'm really lucky to have had the first 64 years of my life with eyesight, although it wasn't always the best. And, um, and, I, and I tried to do a lot of things that involved using that sight, uh, particularly outdoors. I loved the outdoors. And uh, as a young man, I, we lived in forest areas in little towns. So we were living in Kaingaroa Forest for a while where the horizon was all pine trees. It was a boy's paradise for me. My mother hated it because she was a city girl. Um, and and then I, I went on to various adventures. I spent 15 years sailing a 30-foot keeler around the North Island mostly, um, exploring the bush. I had a, a, a schoolboy job, uh, what they call cruising in native bush where um, forest blocks that were going to be cut up and milled had to be, the timber content had to be estimated for sales figures. So 
we would walk through and measure every tenth tree, say, and work out what the timber content was and multiply that by the acreage and so on. Required maths, which I've never been very good at. But um, it, I, I was out in the bush, and I've got some wonderful memories of that. I, the sailing, I really enjoyed the sailing. And in fact, it was because of sailing that I discovered that I was going blind, and I'll come back to that. But um, I've never enjoyed great vision, I should say. I got my first pair of glasses at aged 15, and I suddenly discovered, to my horror, that I could see people's eyes and they could see mine. And up till then, I thought I could have snored away at the back of the class and the teacher would never have noticed. But I suddenly discovered that I could see people's eyes, I could see the blackboard, I could actually see the leaves on trees and blades of grass in the lawn. Um, where, where it presented a problem is that I was an enthusiastic rugby player and the thing I dreaded most was having to catch balls at the kickoff because <laughs> I was never sure quite where they were. And I remember when I was at Massey, um, we, we had a go at making sake and I went out and played a game of rugby the next day and there were black spots everywhere. <laughs> so I was sort of comically clutching at all sorts of things. It, it, I, I, I enjoyed my rugby, but I, I was one who was always capable of passing the ball to the opposition or running the wrong way and uh, making a mickey of myself. Um, and coming back to the story of my eyes, I did a couple or quite a number of trips sailing on my own uh, without modern navigational aids. And I did one where I sailed from Auckland round the top and back down to New Plymouth and got blown off course by a bit of a storm. So I never quite knew where I was starting from and I thought, oh, well, I'll see the mountain after a few days. It took about three days to get from Van Diemen's uh, lighthouse to, to New Plymouth. And I wound up pretty much on target, really, but I didn't see the mountain until the last minute because it was a very sloppy, very um, hazy day. And um, so I decided to teach myself how to use a sextant, which requires you to bring the sun or the moon or the stars down to her horizon and work out by trigonometry where you were on the, on the world map. Um, and, I, and I found out that I could see stars through my left eye but not through my right, which was when I first discovered that the start of my seeing problems because I was diagnosed with glaucoma, which has plagued me ever since. How old were you when that happened? I was just in my early 40s. And it really is an insidious disease. You know, I, obviously I'd been quietly losing sight, although I'd had my eyes checked and I was actually on some drugs to prevent it. I was just a bit too early to get the benefit of modern um, pressure-reducing drugs. So in the end, I lost that eye completely to glaucoma. And um, and then, to compound my seeing problems, uh, I developed a, a, a fogginess in the cornea on my left eye, which at that stage um, I had had several operations to try and reduce the, the glaucoma. They put a sort of a bubble on the top of your eye, which helps to drain it away. And eventually I got a thing called a Beervelt tube in my left eye, where a, a silicon uh, tube is put in through the cornea and runs round to the back of the eye and drains the fluid away that way. So not only I had the mechanical drains and I also had the, um, also had the, the drops going in. Um, glaucoma is, is caused by, by a pressure that gets too high for the light-sensitive cells in the retina to cope and they slowly die. So right now, um, which kills the the, uh, the nerves that feed the sight to the brain. So my left eye is, you could park a truck in front of it and I wouldn't know it with its headlights on and I wouldn't know it's there. And the other eye has slowly deteriorated because to cure the fogginess, they did a, a corneal transplant in which they take a, 
piece of cornea that from has been harvested from someone who's died, about the size of a shirt button, and they cut a hole in the middle of the faulty cornea and then put this other one in and sew it up under a microscope with the, the tiniest needle you've ever seen and the thinnest thread you've ever seen. And the, it, it has to be done in such a way that the pressure's e- even right round the eye because it get wrinkles. You obviously get a wrinkled view of things. Um, so I had that done after uh, after I'd retired as editor of the Taranaki Daily News in 2006, and um, everything went swimmingly for a while. But somehow I I walked because I couldn't see very well. I mean, it, it takes quite a while for the eye to recover from that sort of operation, and uh, after a while smooths out and becomes clear because it's originally, especially corneas that have been stored for a while, uh, they, they get very what they call edemic, which means that they're quite saturated by the preservation of the, the, the chemicals that are preserving it. And so I walked into the end of a branch and uh, fungus spores were deposited before the wound had healed and they got into my eye and uh, that that led to 17 weeks, 17 of the worst weeks of my life in Waikato Hospital. Well, they tried to kill these uh, things before they killed me because they they slowly migrated from the surface of the eye back through the eye and that, that led to a succession of operations and um, traumas and at one stage they were putting drops in my eye night and day every half hour. So you've got sleep deprivation, all sorts of hassles. That, 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 it, it was like being in prison with torture thrown in. And I can remember every morning one of the eye team uh, would take me into this little room with the special device that they look into your eye with. And I could just tell from the body language I could pick up. I couldn't see them, but I could hear them that it hadn't helped. We were still battling this whole awful business. Till in the end I had I think three operations in a week and they they uh, first of all they took the entire cornea so that they knew they'd got rid of all the fungus that was in there and then they did a a smaller diameter hole in the eye and took the the contents of the eye out so that was the lens and all the bits that supported and I just had a vacuum in in the eye and uh, finally after a period of wonder they 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 put a smaller button size piece in in, as the the viewing area because I'd also lost the iris the fungus ate my iris so I didn't have any eye colour and I didn't have any way of controlling light getting into that eye but it, it, in the end it still did a pretty good job of seeing but the glaucoma kept on hammering away at it so that was that was a, a terrible time and I was lucky my wife Alison who's been really supportive to me through well we've supported each other we both had our traumas um, stayed up there for the whole of those 17 weeks just to be a companion and a help and used to put drops in my eyes and and lived in the old nurse's home up there so <laughs> this is all sounds very depressing and at the time it was uh, but there are cheerful sides to it and I can remember I complained bitterly about the uh, the food after about you know they they rotated every month and after about the the, uh, the third rotation i'd had a guts full so al went out and bought a slow cooker and put it in the kitchen and we'd go out for walks whenever we could and you'd come back in and the whole wood would smell magnificent with these beautiful smells from her cooking and all <laughs> all the poor patients were salivating the staff were salivating but i was I was getting better quality meals. The, the funniest thing was that a, a lot of visitors and a lot of the people who'd come in after me um, thought it was Ellie's kitchen, and they'd come. Do you mind? 
can we borrow your kitchen for a while? So we took over this ward. The staff were wonderful. A number of them took us home to their places for meals or just for a bit of social relaxation. And um, and, the, and there was a lot of... Uh, you, you, you had to, you, you've just got to get on with it in these situations. And one of the most fascinating things was that I had about 45, I was in a double room, and I had about 45 people who shared that room with me for short periods, ranging from two 80-year-old palms who'd served in the British Navy during the war to an eight-year-old boy whose granny stayed with him. And uh, and talked to me all night. Didn't get much sleep that night because. And she had horror stories too. She had another grandchild in another ward who'd, who'd been beaten by one of her family and was basically a vegetable. God, it was a, it was a fascinating stay. Actually, I could write a book about the conversations I had with these visitors. But um, it, it the, the hard. A thing about going blind later in life is is the de- the depression you go through. It's almost as bad as somebody dying. Because I used to lie there night after night after night, thinking about all the things I wasn't going to be able to do in my life, all the things I'd loved. I'd I'd, I'd listen to my own advice as as an editor and editorial writer about preparing for retirement. So I had all these sailing, wood turning, reading, photography, um, just just looking at nature. I, just, I could just sit there and look at nature for hours when I could see it. Uh, and, and all of those were gone. And, I, and, I, and the other thing that was really worrying me was what we were going to live on, um, how I was ever going to get back to reading, because that was my primary objective, was to get to a situation where I could I could replace my sight with something that meant I could do something useful. And I heard, I heard this is the Eureka moment, I, I heard an interview with a blind pilot who'd flown halfway around the world um, by using talking instruments. And that was it, I, I, that's the answer. And then a guy from the Blind Foundation came in using JAWS on a computer to take notes. He was assigned to, with trying to find work for blind people um, and, I, and I, when I saw him at that, I, that's what I want I, I need that kind of equipment and so I um, when I finally got discharged, that's, that's what I did I, I had a suitable computer at home I, I, I got a copy of JAWS, I paid for it myself actually because I'd been to an outfit called Walkbridge, Workbridge, which is supposed to help blind people, well, disabled people, get work. And they, they told me I fell through the cracks. So I thought, well, buggy, well, I'll sort it all out myself. And uh, it took me six months to learn to use JAWS, which is a, is a screen reader. It means that basically what visual and people who can see see on the computer screen, we hear because it, it reads it to us. And so we can, we can read books, we can read emails, we can, we can write and do a whole lot of different things using the various apps that are available. And, um, and by that stage, I had had a lot of support from WINS and Social Ministry of Social Development um, I was able to send and receive emails. I could read PDFs because what I decided to do was try and stand for the New Plymouth District Council. I, a, as a journalist, I I'd, I'd, uh, covered court and local body reporting and a lot of that stuff. So I knew quite a lot about it and I also knew a lot of the people in that world. So in I got home in April, I think this was 2007, and by September, when they held the local body elections, I um, I stood. It was a calculated thing because I'd been quite well known as an editor, and that's how you get voted onto these. It's it's knowledge of your name and, and and what you do and what you like. So, and I got onto the council, which 
really completed saving my bacon at that stage. It, I, I just, you know, a, th a thing that a lot of people won't realise until it's pointed out to them is that um, blindness is an incredibly boring condition. You don't, I don't think many people realise how much they entertain themselves by just looking around and looking at, even in a building, looking at people. I mean, the proper study of mankind is man, and so there, there they are for you to see, but if you can't see them, you miss out on that. The architecture of the building that you're in, what's out the window, the whole, all, a whole lot of different things. So uh, the council work, which involves an enormous amount of reading, uh, was it was. I think I was busier than I was when I was an editor because I had to read all this stuff. I I had to compete with sighted people at meetings, which meant I had to read and learn the key points in an agenda so that I could get, be party to the debates. And my fellow councillors took no mercy on me. Um, so you know that if we, I. I it, at that stage, I was trying to get the new Len Lai Centre. I was chairman of the committee that was supposed to coordinate with the Len Lai Foundation. And of course, I had my very serious critics amongst my other councillors. So those debates were pretty fiery. Um, the one thing about it that, that I discovered, and it's I've seen it proved again since, is that just by being there, irrespective of how effective I was as a debater or whatever, just by being there, I, I kept the council, other councillors' focus on the need to think about disabilities and disabled people. And, and I believe that if we can get, if the disabled community can get more people into positions like that, it, it's going to work. And I'm not sure whether you can remember Jeff, but there was a huge debate at one stage about one of the Green Party members who was deaf. And as with me, the, the administrators had to go to a great deal of trouble to accommodate her, her needs in terms of um, her assistance for the deaf, where in my case it was assistance for the blind. They had to modify the way they presented reports and agendas, and um, it was a big learning um, period for both myself and for them, but much to my gratitude, they did, they did do that. And I was able to operate quite efficiently. Um, uh, David, sorry, not David Lee, Peter Tennant was mayor at the time, and um, he didn't hold back in firing out responsibilities either. So shortly after being elected, I was I was given the Lenlight chairmanship because he said I was the most arty farty person on his council, and. Um, and I was given chairmanship of what was then called the, the Disability Issues Working Party, which has since been renamed Age and Access Issues Working Party, where I was, with the assistance of some very um, supportive council staff, able to, to develop a, an access strategy uh, that's recently been modified, but it kind of laid out how the council was going to meet its obligations to these different uh, needs and um, Claire Stewart in her time had actually set this committee up this is short, shortly after the national strategies for ageing and disability were announced back at the I think it was 2001 and we were able to implement a lot of those strategies and ideas through this committee and because of that and the council's staff's willingness to do things um, we became one of the best set up local bodies um, because they also work very closely with an organisation that I now serve on the Taranaki Disability Issues, uh, sorry, Di Taranaki Disability Information Centre, which has um, helped to to organise things like the um, the layout in toilets for the disabled, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I, one of one of my greatest uh, difficulties that I have with public toilets is I tend to get locked in because I, I can see so little 
that I can never find the door. And some of them are absolutely terrible. I remember it being in Auckland once and going into a toilet and the whole interior had been painted purple. And I got in all right and I found where I should go to uh, have a pee. But when I went to leave, there was just purple everywhere of the little I could see, of the little I could see. And I had to wait for someone to come in to be able to go out to find the door. And that's quite a common thing. Um, it's also really important and if anyone likes to go to the toilet at night and leave the light off, if you need to use toilet paper, unless it's where you expect it to be, you can spend some time fiddling around on the wall trying to find where it is. And there is a, there is a, series, a sequence of facilities, so you need toilet paper, uh, somehow to flush the toilet, that's another one that's always a problem for the blind, Where's the hand basin? That's over there. Where is the soap to use? And then how do you dry your hands? And lastly, where's the bloody door? And if, it, if, if you've got a little bit of sight, colour contrast will help you with that. But I, as I say, I'm like the three old ladies that got locked in the lavatory. Uh, I rely on someone coming in to help me out. So, <coughs> that's quite a a lot for us to absorb already, Lance. It is. But Lance, before I get to trying to absorb that, <coughs> your eyesight is not the only issue that you face in terms of a problem. I gather you don't hear as normally as you should as well. And when did that problem arise? About 40 years ago, um, the, my left ear which seemed to be the one that I used most when I was doing telephone interviews or talking to people, suddenly started to dim. And I thought, this, this, this isn't right. It was a bit like discovering what was wrong with my eye, really. So I went off to see um, a specialist who did a few tests and sent me off for an MRI in um, Auckland. That was an interesting experience in those days because they weren't all that common and um, diagnosed an, an, an acoustic neuroma. Now, that's, that's not, it, it, it's a cancerous growth on the nerve that takes sound from your ears to your brain. And it's not malignant, but it just keeps on growing. And if they don't remove it, it can crush the brain stem. So I, I had an operation in Auckland to remove it and they went in through the inner ear uh, and then drilled a hole in my cranium and, and because it's, it it's lies alongside other nerves including those that control the muscles in your face they, uh, they basically hoovered it out cell by cell so they could keep those facial nerves going there were two reasons for that one, it's quite disfiguring to have part of your face that doesn't move and part that does. And secondly, because it, my only good eye was my left eye and it was my left ear, and they wanted to preserve control of the eyelid, which is very important that you're gonna, you know, for, for keeping the eye moist and all those sorts of problems. So that was a 10 hour operation. It was, and, um, <laughs> and, I, I knew that it was going to be quite a hard time, so I'd got really fit. I'd walk, I walked miles or rode my bike because I could still see enough to ride a bike before I went and had this. Um, and it all went well after the operation, except that I, your ears are also your balance organs, and I couldn't stand up when I came to after this, after this operation, and so. It took me three days to learn hanging onto walls and chairs and poor old Ali, who was there again, um, to learn to stand up and walk again. But I couldn't get out of that hospital fast enough. It was, it was horrendous bloody business, it really was. So that was another shocking thing. And of course, with only one ear, you lose your ability to locate sound sources. So when I returned to work, we had a, 
you know, a large open office, a modern sort of open plan office. And I could never, I invariably looked the wrong way when someone yelled out to me and the same thing happened out on the street. I could never quite tell where cars were coming. So going blind after that made life incredibly difficult because I couldn't use my eyes to work out what was up and what was down. Uh, and it took me quite a while. Um, and, and again, you know, going back, going just quickly going back to the period when I was in Waikato Hospital going blind, one of the things the staff forgot to do was ask the Blind Foundation to come in and teach me to use a cane so I could get round on my own. And it happened to be uh, a time when the layout of the old ward blocks and the old wards in that hospital hadn't been modified to accommodate computers. So from my bedroom to the one toilet in the whole ward uh, was a corridor that was full of computers that I had to stumble my way around without the aid of a cane. And it meant that I got to know a lot of people that I hadn't met before because I went into their bedrooms by mistake thinking I was in the toilet. And the other problem was that when I got in there, and this is the horror part of it, uh, I never quite knew what the condition of the toilet seat was. And there seemed to be a, a, a group of nurses who liked to put full bedpans on top of the hand basin, which is... <laughs> so you, you hardened up very quickly on that front. And um, the same... So the same sort of thing went on with, with this uh, going deaf before that, where it would have, it would have helped to have had some training to help me prepare for it because it all just it, you know it, it's like a lot of things that people who haven't been through these experiences just have no idea of the little things that trip us up that become quite significant barriers and discourage us from going out and talking to the rest of the community so that complicated and, and of course well not of course because people don't know but my other great cross was that I, I'm dyslexic and the whole of my family are dyslexic and I think that's both a gift and a handicap. Um, it's a gift because of what dyslexia sort of is caused by short-circuited brains which fortunately for the dyslexic run at a much faster speed um, than a normal brain. So they process things much faster, but they are prone to panic, and they um, they just. I went through all my primary school years thinking I was the dumbest kid in the school, and it wasn't until I got to secondary school and they did a sort of compulsory intelligence test that they do on all these kids that I realised that technically I I was quite bright, but. I was useless at sitting exams because of this panic component that fits into it. But by the same token, the dyslexic brain often will work out solutions to problems like that. And eventually the people can behave in a fairly normal way. I, um, people say, how the hell were you a newspaper editor if you were, if you, if you were that bad? And, and the answer was that my spelling did improve dramatically, especially with modern spelling assistance software. I had a very loyal staff who backed me up and covered my weaknesses. And I think um, from an administrative point uh, I, and from a staff recruitment point, of, I, I was fairly capable without beating my own chest. And partly because I think I, you just intuitively get sort of a better understanding of how people work and what works and what doesn't and so by the end of my career I'd um, my pluses had dominated my minuses I was still probably the worst spelling editor New Zealand's ever had but um, I got through and my kids have uh, are much the same they're, they've they're, I've got a daughter who is a graphic artist for example and it definitely enhances the artistic side of your brain. So she is, is really good at that, although she's had to give it up because of the other problems she's got. But they, they've all overcome those. I've got another daughter who's a top singer-songwriter, plays for Dave Dobbin, 
My son is the IT manager at the Museum of Sydney where, again, um, he's, uh, he's just a whiz on computers. If I could do half what he could do, I'd be a lot e my life would be a lot easier right now. But so that's that, so there's those three components. And um, as a sequence to the hearing loss situation, where the removal of this cancer, um, when I got home, my brain and my head started to swell. So I was given a huge dose of steroids, which unbeknownst to me, weaken the ligaments that hold muscles to bone. And on the first day of a camper van holiday around the east coast, just south of Gisborne, I, uh, I I'd gone up, up up a fairly steep hill to have a pee, and on the way down, one foot, my left right foot slipped, and I checked it as you normally do, and I felt the sensation like a zip going in my knee, and then the other leg took the weight, and that one went too, and I found myself sitting on the ground with my thigh muscles rolled up into my groin, <laughs> and I thought, my God, you've just torn your thigh muscles off your kneecaps. So I bum-shuffled over to a fence. We were in a hired camper van, by the way. I bum-shuffled over to a fence, managed to climb up the fence, got Ellie to bring the broom from the camper van, and I put that under one um, um, pit like Long John Silver, and she got under the other, and I got over to the driving seat, because Al couldn't drive. And I thought, there's no way I'm leaving this camper van and Al parked up here, so we, I, could, I could push down all right with my legs, but if I tried to lift up, it was absolute agony. So by using my hands to lift my thighs, I managed to drive this automatic van down into Gisborne, and we stopped at a at a, uh, a, a, an engineering shop and two young guys came out and drove us, one, one drove us to the, um, to the Gisborne campground where we parked up the, the van as accommodation for Ali and the other one brought a car to take him back and then they got an ambulance and, um, and I wound up in Gisborne Hospital with a very cheerful um, uh, surgeon who who said to me, well, look, I, I've never operated on one of these before. Would you like to go back to New Plymouth to someone you know? And I thought, bugger it. I've just forked out all this money. For, I'm going to finish the holiday. So I said, why don't you do it? Uh, and then I can finish my holiday. And he said, oh, well, I've never done one before, but I'll read the book tonight or we'll see how we go. I've got two to practice on anyway. So he did. Oh. So he, he, he did quite a good job, obviously, because I'm now walking around quite satisfactory, although I've got a couple of zips in my in my kneecaps here because what they did was build, drill holes in my kneecap and drag the end of the muscle back on with sutures. And uh, it took about a week before I felt that I was in a situation where I could carry on. I had my legs straight out in splints which didn't make the getting around very easy, but I managed to convince the medical staff at Gisborne Hospital that I was capable of moving around the, the back of the van and getting out and having a pee and things. And so my daughter drove over from New Plymouth, took over the driving, because Al couldn't drive, and we carried on around the East Coast, much to the entertainment of anyone who happened to meet us on the road. It was... Um, so I know that that's another disability that I'm very well aware of because I was eight weeks like that and I was just fortunate that my upper body strength was enough to be able to flick out of a chair and move off with crutches. So yeah. I'm quite sympathetic to people who have to operate in wheelchairs and other devices as well. You're not only quite sympathetic but you've become a very strong advocate for people in the disabled community <laughs> and I think you've been like that for a while, Lance. Well, it was. I think it was primarily the difficulties I had in in Waikato Hospital. I mean, I wasn't lucky in the social worker that I got to work with there, who was just totally discouraging. And I said to her, well, "What can I do? You know, to just get some 
support till I can get on my feet and start earning money again. And she had no ideas at all. I was lucky with the people that I encountered here, including Brian Erickson at the Disability Information Centre, but um, you have a strong relationship with him, I think. I have a very strong, I, I'm one of his greatest fans. Tell us a little bit about that. He, he's, um, he's a guy, he, he was a, he was a, had a con an earth moving contract and using heavy machinery and he injured his leg and uh, so he experienced fairly severe um, physical handicap but got a job with ACC working out of what is now the Disability Information Centre building. This is about 30 years ago and when, when they decided to it, it it was it was actually set up by a very interesting man called um, oh, I've forgotten his name. I'll have to give it to you later. But he he used to run the Palladium down on Namuti Beach, where the yacht club is now. And he got um, polio to the point that he had to be in an iron lung for six months. And when when he came out of hospital, he got. The, the tendency in those days was for everybody to do handcrafts and so they were doing basket weaving and those sorts of things and he got bored with all of that and he thought god we can do better than this so he bought he bought the house in young street where the center's based and um and they 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 took over a telephone answering service that which was primarily run by people who'd lost limbs for various reasons and they used to they used to work with professional doctors, vets, and people like that, taking telephone because we didn't have iPhones with answers on answering things on them or anything. So they take a message, and periodically during the day, a vet would call and say, you "Got any more calls for me?" and pick those up and go off and do whatever they've been asked to. And the doctors and others were doing the same thing. So it was a very useful service. Of course, as technology got better, it, it, it faded away, but. The building had by then been taken over by uh, what became the Disability Information Centre and Brian had moved from working for ACC to managing the whole operation. So he's been doing it for about 30 years and he is a real authority on the whole subject. In fact, he, he's come up with a whole lot of ideas which are his that are slowly transforming like he He's got a two-hour course or three-hour course um, for improving disability awareness in the community. So we have special training sessions for nurses and and the, 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 the front office staff at places like councils and at the hospital so that that's improving their knowledge. Um, he, he introduced the, uh, the disability award to the top shop a competition run annually by the Chamber of Commerce and uh, and other similar. Oh, he's just got this, these free mobility scooters now that are available to people who want to use them around the park or on the walkway, and and a setup that um, occurs during the Festival of Lights, where people can charter them or hire them for nothing. They they do have to put down a bit of a deposit just to get them out, but they, and they can trundle around the park, which is proving really, really popular. And it's also a good way for some people to learn the advantages of, of having a scooter of that kind for just, you know, it's, it's life-changing really to have that mobility, because in, independence is something that all disabled people really, really want. So that's, that's, that's why, you know, the Blind Foundation have been so good to me with having a guide dog and showing me how to use a cane and that sort of thing. So, uh, well, I'm not quite sure where we're going at the moment, but <laughs> Brian, Brian, Brian's, you, Brian's a good guy. <laughs> and who are the other good guys in town? Uh, there's a whole, there's well, there's, there's there's a whole range of them running different organisations like. The blind for the blind. We've got a local committee that has come up with some very useful initiatives for us, and, and one I'll particularly mention is the book club. Now, we people just don't believe that that we we can read books, but I'll tell you what I mentioned before: how boring being blind was. Well, books are a bit of a salvation for that. So, 
This this is a, a club where something like 15 people get together once a month and they've all read the same book and they'll sit down and review it from their own perspective. There's quite healthy debates go on. Some people like them, some people hate them, but they say why. And the, each member suggests a book for, the, for each month that everybody reads and, and reviews. So you get to read things that you probably would never have looked at if, if you'd been on your own. But it just makes reading that much much more fun. It means that you share around the good books that you've found. And um, and we've had other things like we've got a bowls group and uh, a group that, that do crafts. There's, there's still an interest in crafts. And a lot of older people um, like singing and getting together once a month and just talking about things that they're interested in or being entertained by singers. So there's other there's other activities as well but that sort of thing does tend to go on and we have a number of groups who represent the needs of special disabilities so there's a parkinson's group and there's a there's a a, a dementia group Taranaki uh, alzheimer's group um a lot of a lot of those particular and they have there's been quite a change because a lot of them have been centralised for what they say are efficiencies but they don't always work but um, they're slowly a swing back to having a specialist advisor in the, in the region who supports the activities that are going on there so there's a wide range of names that you can attach to those too um, and you can get information on all of that through the Disability Information Centre, which also supplies equipment. So you can buy mobility scooters through them or other providers in the region. There's regular training sessions on how to use those kind of scooters or or other, other bits and pieces that you might want. Uh, special uh, equipment for, rise, for lifting up the level that loos are at or picking up objects off the ground or whatever you want to think about and you just have to ask Brian for those. And um, there's also, of course, the, the special services for people with intellectual handicaps that uh, range from full-on treatment for people who um, are barely conscious right through to, to people who have mild disabilities and just need a bit of extra hand um, with meals or transport or whatever. Probably the biggest problem that we have as a group in the disability sector is transport because while our public transport system is improving, it's still really far from adequate to meet the kind of needs that, that would be serviced well in a, in a maybe not even in, one, in the big cities in New Zealand, but overseas where they've got the underground service and um, so that's that. That tends to hold things back, but we are we are improving all the time. And of course, we've got this group, which was actually started by the Blind Foundation, who are, are working on improved legislation to to ensure that some of the gaps are filled that at the moment are causing problems. Transport's part of it, of course, but. There are other areas. Um, websites need a lot of improvement if they're going to be read by the blind. Um, and it, and, and it also it just teaching people what, what, what's available that can help them. Uh, deaf and blind people in particular where technology can just change their lives. But it's quite expensive and it's also difficult to learn on your own. So. Um, I think that's that's a big handicap. But this 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 legislation, which is being introduced slowly, because you know a small change here can result in unexpected consequences somewhere else. And so, I, I think the building code, for example, needs a good and thorough um, sort out. But you've got to be careful because that can infringe on a lot of local body bylaws and um, and lead to the reverse effect where instead of improving buildings people just don't touch them because it's so costly to meet the, the, the requirement. 
but they are important. One and then there's one that we've discovered. Well, I've, I've become aware of anyway, and that is that you can have all the legal requirements you like, but if you strike an entrepreneurial builder or plumber or someone, the configuration that I talked about in toilets before can be ignored and they'll think, oh, the drawer will look better over here and why would you put the toilet roll there? That's hopeless. And shift it around and so <laughs> suddenly you've got this dysfunctional so-called um, toilet that's designed for ease of access for disabled people. So there's a, there's a whole raft of issues out there um, and different, different people are doing things there's also a huge amount of competition going on. Um, there's a program called Enabling Good Lives, which is about allowing the disabled individuals to work out the way they want their life to go and the improvements they'd like to see for themselves. And of course, that, that does uh, engender a lot of competition from the providers who can help them to do that. And that's all still shaking down. We've we've got this transformation of the health system that's underway where we're reducing the number of health boards. Nobody quite knows where the hell that's going to wind up and what that's going to mean. It's it's eased partly by the fact that we've got a new uh, ministry devoted to the needs of disabled people. But that's still to be polished off and launched properly. Um, and there's a lot of controversy about who should be in charge of that. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a battle gone on because uh, people want a disabled person to run that ministry, and at the moment they haven't got one, although the person who's got the job does have links to the disabled community. So we're, we're in a state of considerable flux, um, even... Even the blind and low vision organisation that, that, that services us is uh, going through a lot of change and there's kind of a, a claim that there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians and that we don't seem to have the support staff out amongst the people in the community, which is this problem with a lot of different versions of disability. So it's a fascinating time. Um, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of potential for mistakes, and it does create a lot of uncertainty amongst people who really have a, more than their share of, of confusion in their lives. It sounds like you are reasonably optimistic about the future in the disability sector. I'm always optimistic, <laughs> Jeff. I, it's something I learnt, you know, those those nights of horror in the hospital when until I made that change and said, this is bloody stupid, you're just depressing yourself, get on with it. You're never going to see again, so make the most of it. And, um, and it kind of affects my attitude to all of these things. I mean, any improvement is an improvement. And... Um, you know, I personally feel I don't know how lucky I am because of the help that I've had from different things like Brian's organisation and, and the Blind and Low Vision uh, group and, uh, and, and well, it sounds a bit, oh, what's the word, you know, it, it sounds like I'm beating my chest when I reel off the number of organisations I work with. It's selfishness, really, because if I didn't have them all, I'd be bored to tears. Wouldn't know what to do with myself. So it's, it, it's you know, I, but the, the, the message that I must give to anybody who has a disability is stop worrying about yourself and just get on with it. And the, there are huge rewards if you share what skills you've got with the community helping others. The rewards, the, the, the greatest rewards in life, I think, come from giving. And, um, and that's what I've found anyway, from personal experience. I change the subject slightly. How did you get your passion for the arts? I've got an artist for a wife. And I've always, we've always loved 
we're pretty eclectic uh, people listening to music so I've always loved music um, I've always loved art because I, I I like to be challenged intellectually and I think art does that I, I've never forgotten and I never will and it's the reason I was so keen on getting a Lend Life Centre the first time I took my four year old son to see Trilogy play in in the Gavette Brewster when Len Lai visited here in 1977. The look, on the, oh, I was blown away, but he was transfixed. I saw every emotion known to humanity go fleet through on his face as he watched that crashing, bashing, flashing sort of carry on. And he, always, and he was always wanting to go back. And that's one of the things I love about Len Lai. He's, he, he has this natural love of humour and he puts it into his works and they appeal to everybody from small kids to old people and it just it, you've got to be prepared to devote some time to 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 allow the thing to grow on you and and understand what he's trying to do but i i never actually met him physically myself but i was i watched him working and uh and, and, and I, the, the, it's a wonderful story how John Matthews went to America and convinced him that he should have an exhibition in the Gavette Bruce and brought it out here. And Trilogy was, there was Trilogy and, uh, and Fountain and um, I think uh, Universe in that first exhibition. So, and his generosity, in, he, he fell in love with the new planet. Part of the reason was that as a boy at the age of 10, he, his, his stepfather was a lighthouse keeper at Cape Campbell. Where, and he fell in love with waves and that, that's kind of where his, his whole beginnings were. And they had the good sense when they brought him out in, here in 77 to, to put him by the beach at Oakura where the surf rolls in and he just... He just loved the whole aspect of Taranaki and the can-do attitude of John and his staff that helped install that exhibition and was so carried away that he donated his life's works to, to New Plymouth. And uh, a lot of people don't realise how lucky we are, but I, I haven't been all that impressed with the initial activity display as works, but I think we're getting there. Um, and so that's influenced my attitude to it and I'm no artist myself I did a bit of sculpting at one stage and, but I've got very artistic kids and my wife of course who who you, I don't think anyone's ever quite realised what a significant role she's played in theatre in New Plymouth with her, with her sets we used to work on them together and Al was the artist and I was the mechanical engineer, so I'd work out how we could achieve something using trucks and drops and things, and she'd paint them. And, you know, I'd have this boring looking... We used to make models out of um, plywood. And <laughs> she'd take one of these and, and her, with a paintbrush, just create Wonderland. We, we were involved with a little theatre mainly, and... Um, we did a series of pantomimes every Christmas that the kids just loved. I've never forgotten doing Robin Hood and I have never seen or felt the sheer hate and anger that the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham generated with every appearance on stage when he would be pelted with pebbles and lollies and all sorts of things and the whole stage became a disaster area for the actors. So. I was stage managing that and I had to get out with a big broom and sweep the stage every time the sheriff walked past, shouting the kids into anger. Uh, and the, the, the sheer hatred that crossed those footlights were just amazing. So, and Al, Al just, oh, some of the things we did, the kids, people just got up and clapped when, when the set changed and suddenly they were transported to a pirate ship or the boy, Lost Boys Cave or... Cinderella's Cottage or... Yeah. We're extremely lucky to have you in our midst, keeping all this 
entertainment going for us. I'm a great appreciator of what goes on in the museum and I am very fond of the tours they give us and I love going there a lot, so all good. We well, see that that's something that grew out of that disability strategy actually. The way back, um, we, we, we're back in the, uh, where are we, in the 20, late, early, early 20 teens um, with this, and they, they took on board, this is Rona, Rana Davenport, took on board this idea of disability, um, and they've always been, and those tours grew out of that, one of the one of the exhibitions that I, I will never forget was uh, it, it was a it was a it was a video of twelve selected New York citizens who were blind, just uh, sort of describing what life was like for them. And I learned something there that I should have realised, but never did. They they as part of the movie they were asked to feel the leg of an elephant and describe what it felt like. And as a result of that, um, they were asked, how, what, what, how did they dream? Did they dream in objects or sounds or what? And one of the, uh, one of the women uh, said she couldn't dream in objects because she didn't know what, what the objects looked like, but she dreamt in sound. And now she could dream with in touch because she touched an unusual thing which most blind people wouldn't go near with the gooey of an elephant's leg and it sort of made me think well I'd never thought of that because I still dream in objects and people but you know and only only a person who's born blind could really appreciate that and it, it does make you think we need to look at people with these problems in a different light and with different eyes really but th that's it's been a huge success to my opinion and yet I get so many people who say to me why do you go to the art gallery you can't see the pictures and of course they get so well described to us by the people who run those tours that we don't need to see them and and you also get to learn a lot more than you would normally about the background of the artists and the way that the with the material they're made from and, and 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 you can experience I don't know whether you remember is it Robertson I think it was who filled the gallery up with um, polystyrene chains and it had a, a completely different atmosphere and, and, and funny little squeaky noises as it moved it was it was a fascinating exhibition to me and you could almost feel the white, the whiteout that it created. So that, that that's it's great, really. Um, and you don't need to be an art buff as such to appreciate that sort of thing. You know, it's a, it, it's another way of conquering the the boringness of blindness and having another experience and quite different to what sighted people get, I guess. Or there's a, there are some crossovers, but. No, you're, you're quite right, Jeff. It's we a very rich experience for me. Whenever I've encountered it, I remember very vividly what has been described to me. It brings it to life. It does. And the theatre the same. If you get to meet the people in the theatre prior to the performance, yep. or the musicians, it transforms the experience afterwards. You feel very enriched by it. I, I think so. I, didn't pe I mean, I can remember going along to a... a, a uh, it was a sort of um, modern musical piece that, where the the, we, the local musicians brought their instruments along because we weren't allowed to touch the uh, the multi thousands of dollars worth of um, professional instruments. But and then they and then the, then the musicians themselves exhibited the range that it was possible to achieve with those instruments, and then played this way out music, which I can't say I thoroughly enjoyed, but it was a big experience. And we had someone describe it all. So we had audio description, which is a which is a new innovation where someone tells the blind or whoever it is what's happening on stage. And in in bad if you're involving bad actors it's quite nice because they actually tell you what the actor's trying to portray, anger, 
love, lust, or whatever it might be. And with these musical things, it gave a bit of background to the music and what the orchestra or the musical groups try to achieve. So, and we've got it on television now. You, you, can, you can get it at the movies. Um, in fact, the local cinema now has headsets that they can issue to people in certain cinemas that will do the same thing. So we can go to the moving pictures, which we didn't used to be able to. You can hire DVDs or it. And um, life is getting richer and better all the time. But it's it, it, it's up to the community that you're trying to service uh, to support these things. Like we was we're not getting enough people, I don't think, to the tours of the art gallery, for example, and a few more would just make it uh, better all round, really. Well, the more we talk about this, maybe the more people will be encouraged to go, because I think it's a wonderful experience. I agree, absolutely. Thank you very much for an inspiring talk. Whenever you talk, you always set my head spinning with what you do and how much you have influenced people around you. I'm always most impressed. Thank you, Dave. It's a Jeff. <laughs> I must say, this idea of yours is really impressive too and hopefully it will help people to understand the pressures that are on some of our disabled community and the amazing amount of work that's being done by volunteers and others to help them. So well done. Thank you. Tēnā koutou ku wahi ki tēnā kopapa. Hairi i runga i nā manākitanga. Ka kitiana e te Thanks for listening. Bye for now. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth. Thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com.